You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Thanks, John. Uh, Before we have you sit, uh, we do have Redemption Hill Kids this morning. And so Redemption Hill Kids for kids ages 2 to 4 and then 5 to 9 if that serves you. Uh, this is the question that they'll be focusing on this morning. This question is from the New City Catechism, and the answer is from our Confession of Faith. So this is the question our kids will be learning this morning, specifically the kids 5 to 9. What is faith in Jesus Christ? And we went over this answer three weeks ago, because there's five Sundays in this month. And so it's the same answer. So with me, the grace of faith is a work of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts of the elect, where they are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls. This grace of faith is ordinarily a bond in the ministry of the Word and is also increased and strengthened by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God. Amen. You may be seated. Again, if it serves you, kids, you may be dismissed. You can go right across the hallway there. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, Happy Sunday to you. We are in the throes of summer. It is hot. It is humid. But hey, God is good, right? And uh, we'll all be be complaining in January when it's cold and windy and snowy. (laughs) Uh, It is my uh, great privilege privilege to introduce to you uh, a guy who has preached to this church before. Actually, uh, if if you remember, I think it was last July, we were meeting at... um, was it Fox Creek Pavilion, right? Fox Creek Pavilion. And the AC stopped working. It was, it was, like, it was a day like today, except the sun was out. And it's like, we're all like, what is going on here? And then Rob Danielson brings in his big fan, because everyone has a big fan located in their truck, and cooled the place down for a little while. And Rob, Pastor Rob Chisholm, endured. And he blessed us through the preaching of the Word. So Rob Chisholm is from Philly, um, more specifically, because that's not specific enough for Philadelphians. Uh, he's from Northeast Philly, and from, so Grace City Church in Northeast Philly. Uh, brought two daughters along, Kara, Irina, welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And then Rob, she want to come up and um, bless us with the preaching of God's Word. So uh, we're quiet, folks, but we're going to clap today. So we, we clap. Thanks, Sean. It is our joy to be with you again and to be in air conditioning. (laughs) It's a great blessing, isn't it? Just as heat is in the winter. I do bring you greetings on behalf of Grace City Church of the Northeast in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, It's our joy to be partnered with you in Trinity Fellowship Churches. That's the connection. That's why we're here. So if you ever hear about that, keeping things like our confession, um, there's just an assumption there, right, Sean, that everyone knows our confession is the Trinity Fellowship Church's confession of faith. And so it's, it's our joy to be partnered together. Sean and I actually get to serve together on one of our committees, and that is a joy as well uh, to see what God is building there and building us into churches that aren't just floating alone doing our own thing, but can walk together, learn from one another, and build together for the sake 
of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ going to every tribe, tongue, and nation for his glory alone. If you have your Bible, uh, we had the reading from Jeremiah 29. That is where we will be today, and there will be a, a few times where we're pointing back to it, so that would be helpful to have open. But before we begin, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that we who have gone astray, gone our own way, and only deserve your judgment, instead of turning away from us in judgment, you have come after us, and you have spoken to us by your word and by your Son. And we ask that today, by your Spirit, you would open our eyes to see what you would have us to see from this ancient letter. Would you help us to see what you want us to see, get out of it what you want us to get out of it, to feel what you want us to feel, and by your power to be the people that you have called us to be while we wait for Jesus to come again. So Spirit, would you come and help? Help me to say what would be useful and helpful Help each who is listening to be attentive and eager, not because uh, I'm here, but because it's your word that is being opened. And in your word, we are given life and given direction for our lives. And so would you meet with us? Would you care for us? Would you lead us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever feel that tension that has already been more than hinted at in the liturgy today? The tension of living in this world but not being of it. The tension of knowing our true home is in another world and yet it sure feels like we're here for a while. The tension of everything seems to be going wrong and it can't be long now, certainly. And yet, some of us have gray in our beards now. And he hasn't come yet. And so here we are. There's so much wickedness out there, which that's a bad assumption that there's not any in here, but that's not what we're talking about so much today. That there's so much out there, and what do we do? And we are tempted to like, well, we, we've got ourselves, and that's good, and we'll just kind of deal with other Christians, and that's where it can kind of be safe, and things will be good and healthy. But that's not what God has for us either. And so if you ever feel that tension in any way, this is for you. You're like, you're trying to make sure all of us have to listen. You got it. But before we get to, okay, this is our home, this is not our home, what do we do, how do we do it? We kind of want to take a minute to talk about what's going on in this text. So this message is actually going to be part and uh, people who teach preaching say you shouldn't do things like this, but I'm old enough that I can do uh, what I want. This message is going to be part how to read your Bible and part how to live as God's people. Okay, So the, the main thrust will end up being how to live as God's people, but part of this is how to read your Bible. What we're doing at, at our own church in Philadelphia this summer is taking a quick walk through the major prophets and doing an overview message on each one of them, and then kind of some representative texts to say, here's some texts that tend to be just grabbed and immediately applied to our lives, and maybe you shouldn't do it like that. 
but also this is still valuable and good and important and for us today. So that's what we want to do. It's part how to read your Bible, part how to live as God's people. So before we get into how do we live as God's people, it's what is going on with this text. Where are we in Jeremiah? Where are we in the story of God's people? This letter, as it's noted in those, those uh, first few verses, uh, this letter is actually written between the years 597 and 586 B.C., you know, how do we know that? Well, because I, I didn't see the year there, right? It didn't say what year it's written. Well, back then, they kept time by events, right? They didn't know they were counting down to the birth of Jesus, and that's how the years would be reckoned. Like, they didn't say this happened between 597 and 586. They weren't actually doing time backwards back then. That's something we have a lot of fun with the kids at in our, in our own church. It's like, how did, wait, what did, how does it? Right, so they just did it by big events, which we tend to do the same things, right? Like 9-11, if you're of a certain age, there's a before 9-11 and an after 9-11. And that's getting further and further away. So the people who are graduating from college were infants. And anyone who goes, oh man, that means you're old. And for a generation before, it was the Kennedy assassination. Everyone who was above about second grade then, knows exactly where they were. And if they were school age, they remember their teacher trying to tell them and breaking down. Because it was that big and everyone felt it. And there was that moment. The generation before that was Pearl Harbor, where everyone knows how they found out on that fateful Sunday that meant we were all in on World War II. And so even for us, even though we go, well, that happened in 1941 and 1963 and 2001, like we know those things and we count them by the years. Back then they didn't really have that. It's when this guy was in charge, when this guy was the king, before this deportation, when all of these people had been taken away. And that's exactly what we see in these first few verses. And the basic gist of it is, Jerusalem fell in three stages to Nebuchadnezzar in 605, 597, and 586. And the guy who had been taken away in verse 2, this was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother and all the others in the list there had departed. That departure happened in 597 in the second stage because he was left as the king after Jehoiakim, who was the first king, had been taken away. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, here, you can be in charge. He's like, okay, good. And so there's like, you need to obey. And then a little bit into it, he's like, Babylon's so far away. We're just going to kind of do our own thing here. Egypt, you're still, you weren't totally crushed in that last battle, right? We can do this. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes back and says, "Ah, no, I'm in charge. We're doing another deportation. That one happened in 597. And this letter was written after that. When a new guy was put in charge, and this is Zedekiah, the king who's mentioned in verse 3, who sent the letter to Nebuchadnezzar and to the exiles in Babylon. And he's the king, and he ends up following the same pattern. And a few years later, he's like, we can do this. We can be our own people. We can be free. And they couldn't. And then Jerusalem is finally crushed, and that's where the temple is totally destroyed, and the wall is completely broken down, and only the very poorest of the poor remain in the land. So this is in between those times, where there's been exile now for a little while, right? So there were eight years between the first and second deportations, and then sometime after that, 
There are prophets saying the exile will be short because this is the place where the Lord dwells. You are his people and you are in his place. And those people who are in exile are outside of God's place and outside of God's plan. And it's going to be short. And that's what Jeremiah addresses in the rest of the letter that we didn't have read today. And so if you're interested in that, you can start reading at verse 15 and keep going later on and see that there were false prophets. And Jeremiah is essentially writing this letter to say, no, the exile is going to be long. And so then he teaches them what they are to do in the remaining time of their exile. And he tells them it'll be 70 years. Now, prophecies aren't that specific for us. We don't know when things will happen But this does have words for us in how to live. In fact, Daniel read this letter much later, right near the end of the 70 years. And he goes, oh, 70 years? How long has it been? It's going to be close. And that's what we see in Daniel 9 with his personal confession and then the corporate confession, confessing the sins of his own and of his people Fulfilling, actually, what happens here of seeking the Lord and being found by Him. So you go, okay, well, that's really neat history, and that's what this letter is about. How in the world is it for us today? We're not Jews. We're not in Babylon. We're not hoping to go back to Jerusalem. We don't know what's going to happen in 70 years, so the whole build houses and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we got that. What about us? I mean, because aren't we really just reading someone else's mail here in Jeremiah 29? Well, where are we in the story of God's people in and through Christ? As we've been singing about and had readings about, we are still in exile. And that is the dominant New Testament motif. And that's why the title of the sermon is Living as Exiles. It was mentioned from the reading in Hebrews. It's mentioned throughout 1 Peter. If you really want to like, hey, how do I live as an exile? 1 Peter's your book. That's your place. But it's not just there. James is also writing to exiles in his letter. And this is really, again, the dominant picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We are exiles. We have a home, but we're not there yet. But we can't just read this letter and go like, well, we're exiles. They were exiles. So I'll just read it like verse for verse. This is for me. That's where you end up getting to verse 11 and go, I have found my life's verse, right? If you knew one verse in this text today, it's Jeremiah 29, 11. And it's great. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And what happens is, Some well-meaning Christian is reading their Bible and going like, I have no idea what to do with any of this book, right? You're reading along. I don't know how this works at all. That verse, that one spoke to me. The Spirit's still working today, right? There it is. I have found my life's verse. The Lord has plans for me. Everything's going to work out fine. I have a future and a hope. My business that I'm about to start, we're going to put this on the wall, and we know it's going to be successful. We want our kids to grow up to know and love the Lord. We're going to stick that on the wall, and we know it's going to happen because he has plans for us, good ones. I'm here to tell you that's not what it means. Sorry. It does mean something, though, and it's not bad. So I... 
Yeah, if you have it on your wall, I'm really sorry. <laughs> and it's still really good, but what makes it really good is the context that it's in. Um, not it by itself, because it is not a promise that your family life will go well. It's just not. It's not a promise that all your business endeavors will succeed. And when we take it like that, and then things don't go well, we're crushed. God, you promised. I had your very word on it. And we're tempted to doubt God's word because he didn't come through. He didn't do what he promised. I claimed that even. And so we don't want to just pick a verse that sounds good to us or seems relevant to us and claim it for ourselves when we may end up being deeply disappointed and thinking we're disappointed with God and his word. We want to see it for what it meant then so that we can rightly apply it to ourselves now. Because it doesn't mean, well, this letter was to somebody else, so just forget it. Right? That's not what I'm saying. As much as you might think, but you just threw Jeremiah 29, 11 out of my life. It still can be part of our lives, just not as that direct a promise and not that close a good future. It's not about your business succeeding, but God does have plans for you. And he does have plans for your welfare. It doesn't mean you'll have a nice retirement home necessarily, but it means the place after that home will be good. And all the things that are wrong will be undone. And we will be finally home. And we can have some hope there. And that's a hope that will not disappoint. So we don't just grab it directly for ourselves when we find a verse that we really like. We also don't just throw it all away because there's no possible way we can figure out what it means. Or if we do, it only has meaning for way back then and not for now. It does have meaning and use today. So this is part of how we learn to read the Old Testament, particularly with the major prophets or Jeremiah. It's clear if we read more than one verse, it's not talking about our personal prosperity in life. But there is a lot for us here. We are in a sort of exile. That's the dominant picture. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to the elect exiles. He's writing to them, 1 Peter 1.17, about throughout the time of your exile. This is, the New Testament writers were very aware that our home is coming and we are not there yet. So the big idea this morning, that was like the part about how to read your Bible. Now is going to be the part about how to live as God's people the big idea is this. We must love, serve, and pray for the home where God has placed us while we wait for our final home. And just a word about the underlining there. You go, that may, those may not be the most important words, but for the kids who are taking notes, if you can't get down every word on the screen, and see, I'll talk long enough that maybe you can, but if not... If you just get the underlined words, you'll get kind of the main idea. And so you'll see that in a few other spots as we work through the outline this morning. We must love, serve, and pray for the home where God has placed us while we wait for our final home. So what we're going to be working through in the rest of our time together is that this world is our home. And you're like, wait a minute, we've been singing about 
The second point is, <laughs> this world is not our home, so we'll get to that too. And then that the Lord indeed will bring us all the way home. And while we wait, we must love, serve, and pray for the home where God has placed us. So that's the big idea, and the first point is there. This world is our home. And that's drawing from the point in the big idea, the home where God has placed us while we wait. It is the home where God has placed us. Even Babylon, though it felt nothing like home, was the home where God had placed his people for that time. In verse 4, the Lord says, I have sent you into exile. In verse 14, the last one that was read, talking about the place, I'll bring you back from the place where I sent you into exile. You go, but wait, didn't Nebuchadnezzar do that? Like, didn't he and Babylon take over and take people away and deport them? Yes. And wasn't it because of their sin? Yes. And I sent you into exile. We're used to like one or the other. That's how we think about things and the way causes work, right? It's like if someone drags you out of this room, they did it, right? If Joseph is sold into slavery, his brothers did it, right? But what does he say to them at the end? God sent me ahead to prepare all this so that you'd survive. And then at the very end of the story in chapter 50, after his father dies, and they're all like, okay, now that Jacob's dead, surely Joseph is going to get his revenge on us. He says, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good, to save many people alive as it is this day. So who did it? <laughs> it's like, in an ultimate sense, God did it. Now, were his brothers still responsible for their sin? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Did God send him ahead of time? Yes. And so it's both. And here we have both again. Nebuchadnezzar did it. The people deserved it. And it's the Lord who sent them. The Lord is the one who puts you where you are. And so whether you've gotten to where you are through your own sinful actions or through the sinful actions of others, and you feel like, I'm in a place where I can't be used anymore, I've fallen too far, or I've been dragged down too far, and the Lord is done with me, and there's nothing else for me, and I can't really be useful to Him the Lord is not done with you. This text tell you, tells you that he indeed still has plans for you. And he still has things for you to do, even in exile. And they were in exile because of their sin. They were not outside God's sovereign care. They were not outside God's provision. They were not outside God's plan for them. And how much more is this true of us? But it's easy to feel like when things aren't going the way they should, 
when our health fails, when finances fail, when the people we were sure we could trust are gone or prove exceedingly untrustworthy. What do I have left? Who am I anymore? Is God caring for me? Is there a future for me? And the answer is yes. You are never outside of God's sovereign care. You are never outside of his provision. And you are never outside of his plan. So whether this is where you've always wanted to be, or you can't wait to get out, that's more aligned for people who live on the coast, I think. God has put you here. And he will take care of you both now and forever. And that doesn't mean you never move. Right? Some people that I looked in the face and said these exact words to about four weeks ago told us two weeks ago that they're moving away to Missouri of all places. So it doesn't mean we never move, but it means that wherever we are, God has us and he will take care of us both now and forever. And so while we wait we're not supposed to just be biding our time. And that is the main point of Jeremiah's letter. I mean, his, if he had a big idea, it's like, it's going to be longer than you think. <laughs> the false prophets are telling you it's going to be a year or two and you're going to come home. No, it's going to be 70. And then his application is what we find here in kind of the middle verses of the text in verse 5 and following. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And then he goes on to talk about the lies that they're saying in his name. So five through seven is that kind of the meat of his application and it's going to be there. They're going to be there for a while. That's pretty clear, right? He's saying, if you're not married, get married and have kids. And also have your kids get married. Like that, that takes at least a few minutes, right? It takes a while. So he's saying, don't just wait with your bags packed for the promised land, right? Don't let those false prophets who are like, oh, it'll be a year or two. Just be ready. We're like, okay, we're ready. It's like, nope, settle down. Act like you live there, because you're going to live there for a long time. And it wasn't just the false prophets in Jeremiah's day saying the time is going to be short. So I'm going to meddle a little bit in eschatology for a minute and hope that I, it ends up okay. And if there's anything bad, just talk to Sean about it later. They will. They will. That's good. Lots of people have tried to pinpoint when Jesus is going to come back and everything's going to be fine. The most recent kind of well-known one was Harold Camping in 2011. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Okay. Uh, family radio, and there were ads everywhere, billboards all up and down I-95 in Philly and Baltimore and all, all up and down the East Coast. You know, the time is short with the date right on it, right? May 21st. 2011. And it was going to be great. He actually had it pinpointed that it was going to be six o'clock Eastern time. 
So I'm not sure what time that would have been. I know that it's 5 o'clock here then, but I don't know if, because how was his, I'm not sure. But somehow he had it figured out, 6 o'clock Eastern time. We actually had a couple in our church getting married that day. And their reception was from 2 to 6. And at 5, I'm like, you guys want to like leave just a little early? Just in case. They were confident that everything was going to be fine, um, and it was. May 21st, that was a Saturday, it passed, and then all of a sudden, we learned a new thing in eschatology, because what do you do on Monday morning on family radio, right? So Harold goes, well, that was the rapture, and he had already said this part, the rap- that was going to be the rapture. And then the end of the world was going to be October 21st. And so after May 21st passed, he said, you know what? That was a secret rapture. I'd heard of the secret rapture. I had no idea that it would be so secret that even the people who participated in it didn't know. (laughs) But that's what happened. It It was a spiritual, invisible rapture. And so now everything's set. So if you belong to Jesus, you have already, you're already with him. Except you're like here, you still need to eat and drink and stuff for the next six months. But you're already with him. But the world around is now like there, it's done. The day of grace has passed. It's over. Don't talk to anybody about Jesus. They can't turn anyway. They have no chance. And it will all end on October 21st. After October 21st, thankfully, he repented and said, I was wrong about the whole thing. I don't think he did it right after October 21st, but he did do it before he died. And so that was good. But he's not the first. There was a guy who wrote a book called 88 Reasons that Jesus Christ will return in 1988. And then when it didn't happen, he wrote another book in 1989. And 1993. And 1994. You're like, I wish I had his confidence. Like four times? This guy's incredible. He's amazingly wrong. And what's the lesson? Well, listen to Jesus. He said, nobody knows the day and the hour. So it's like, stop doing that. If you're tempted toward that in any way, which I'm sure you're not. But we did have some people who were in our church who were like, you know, I like family radio. I trust Harold Camping. And had a hard time with that and decided for a little bit the institutional church is done because he said so. So listen to Jesus, not your favorite teacher, We're not going to figure out the time. And yes, we're to look forward, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But for now, this is our home, like for real. And so even though we're exiles, and even though this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, is true in a sense. This world is indeed our home. So instead of waiting with packed bags, like we're ready to go on the trip, we're supposed to be Full participants. And not just for what we can get out of it. Right? It's not just verses 5 and 6. 
It's not just build houses, plant your gardens, have kids and grandkids. Like, we all like those things. Those things are all good for us, right? It's not just get out of it what you can, live alongside these pagans. Verse 7 is there. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So this world is our home. So love, serve, and pray for it. And that word welfare is more than what we think of with welfare. Well, usually with welfare, we actually think of like a social program now with the way it's used in the United States. But the word welfare here is actually the word shalom. The one that means peace, but not just like we're not at war, right? But wholeness. And so welfare is trying to capture that. There's really no one English word that can capture the meaning of the word shalom. It's about peace, prosperity, flourishing. That is what we're called to seek for our city. And ultimately, where will that come from? It will come from Christ, who is our peace and the one who will bring us home to the promised land. So our seeking the welfare of the city isn't just like, well, I have to have a job because I live in this world, so I'll work my job and I'll, I'll do it well and everything and that'll be fine and I'll make my money and I'll retire and I'll have my life. It's seek the wholeness, the flourishing, the beauty, the fullness of joy even for the place where we live. This world is our home. That is our calling in it. Not just to look at it over there and be like, yeah, all that bad out there, but at least we're okay. Oh, all the people who are suffering, but at least we're fine. All the bad things going on, but I'm okay. We're called to take a different approach because this world is our home. We love serve, and pray for the city, the home where God has placed us. This world is our home. But as you know very well, and has been alluded to multiple times today, this world is not our home. And the fact that this world is not our home informs how we live in the home where God has placed us now. This world is not our home, so live by the values of your forever home. Because sometimes we can hear, well, this world is our home. Okay, we're supposed to be just fully engaged, fully involved in society, and we're just going to jump in and get involved. But how do we do that any differently than anyone else does? The only way we really live fully with this world as our home is when we know that it's not our final home, that this world is not our home. We live by the values of our forever home. So though we don't just sit around on a mountaintop waiting for Jesus to come, we should long for the world to come. While we endure our own exile, we live out the values of the promised land here and now. So even though this is a call to full participation for the peace of the place that God has called us, This is not a call to engage in the practices and patterns of the present age because that 
would lead to destruction. We don't go, oh, the world is our home, so we just do everything they do. The world's our home, so we think the way everyone else does. That is not how we seek the peace of the city. It might bring a temporary certain kind of peace, right, where I want to be liked by people. I don't want to be seen as different from them. Well, sure, I think the same thing you do about that. When you know that God has said something different about that issue, it brings a kind of peace, but not the peace that we're supposed to seek. It's a call for full participation, but not engaging in all the practices and patterns of the present age. And so, how do we do this? (laughs) Yes, we seek the good of the city, but we do that by living differently than we did before and differently than those around us. We actually seek the welfare of the city by living fully engaged in the city and not being the same as the rest of the city. Our full participation is not being the same. It's living with them fully, but differently. They were called in this exile to be God's distinctive people in the midst of the city. And we are too. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. Kind of a highlight from that is 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so this doesn't mean we just don't do bad things. Sometimes we can think about being different from the world is we listen to different music or wear different clothes. That's kind of how I came up. I don't know if any of you uh, think, have, have thought that way as well. It's like, well, we wear different clothes. That's, that's how we look different. We, we don't listen to certain music or we don't go to certain places. And so that's how we're different. And we don't, we don't do the things that they do. And there are things they do that we should not do. So we actually don't want to throw that out entirely, even if it may not look like the dress code that I grew up with. But it's not only a not doing, it's a doing differently. So there are things we must refrain from, right? It's right there in 1 Peter 2. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. And we don't want to reach a kind of freedom in our Christianity that forgets there are passions of the flesh that we should abstain from because they're fighting against us. And there's no point of maturity at which they go away. You don't go, oh, we're free from all that. We can do what we feel. No. But it's not simply avoiding the bad things the world does. He says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, you're like, man, this sounds like he's writing today. That's exactly what they're going to do. We're just trying to be faithful Christians. And they're going to say we're evil and hateful and wicked. And it's like, I didn't even know they knew those words meant anything, right? And they have a different meaning than for us, but they're going to call us bad and hateful and wrong and wicked. And we don't even deserve a place in polite society. And you're like, Peter felt all of those things and then told us what to do. He told us not to fret about it. He didn't tell us, yeah, see, they're bad, they're out there. He says, when they speak against you as evildoers. You are to have kept your conduct among them honorable in such a way 
that they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. And this isn't some sort of performative, like they check your Instagram feed and see how you served people, right? That's not what we're looking for. It's not, oh, here we are with the poor today. That's not how they're going to see our good deeds. It's that they have literally, with their own eyes, not because you have told them about your good deeds, but they have observed them. Which means that you have lived close enough with them for them to observe your life. To be aware of what you don't do and why. To be aware of how you're different so that they ask why. Peter is not calling us to create our own little spiritual world, our own Christian ghetto, as it were, separated from the rest of the city or living within our own city entirely. You guys could almost do that here. There's enough. I'm sure it's not unclaimed land, but land that you could get and do that. It's not what he's saying to do. Rather, we are to live the values of the Christian realm in the midst of the earthly realm. There's an assumed interaction in 1 Peter between the Christian and the world, but always with it being clear that Christians are not of the world. We live like we're at home and like we have a different home. Like this is not our home. And that leads to a really important question for us. If we were living close enough with unbelievers for them to know the patterns of our lives, what we care about, what we talk about, what we spend our time on, would there be a discernible difference? Or are we just a whole lot like them and the big difference is we come to Radiant Elementary on Sunday? But we live for the same things all the rest of the time. We're doing our jobs. We're making our money. Living for the pleasures. And, oh, well, they're simple, clean pleasures. Okay. Would they just think, well, they, sure, they have a little different standard on something than I do. But we're essentially the same. We care about the same things. We value the same things. Or would they say well, that's a follower of Jesus. Or if they don't know that terminology, like, hey, you're a different kind of Christian. Because the thing is, there's a lot of Christians around here. And so if you have coworkers, they probably have had coworkers at some point who claim to be Christians, who will cut corners just like they will, and who will go after the high dollar sale because it's the high dollar sale just like they will. And so maybe it's they end up saying, you're a different kind of Christian because many unbelievers are used to Christians being just like them, angry about the same kinds of things that they are, especially if you're in an area where there are a fair amount of people who are just conservative anyway and not necessarily because they're Christians. We can like, yeah, we have that in common. Boy, that, let's see what the president did the other day. Right, and we laugh or we get upset. Okay, well, how would being citizens of a better country help us in those moments? We're called to be different. 
And the thrust of 1 Peter is that we live that different life because we have a different hope. Our hope as Christians is not wrapped up in what we can acquire, achieve, or experience in this life. Our hope ultimately is that the Lord will bring us all the way home. And that's what he'll do. This world is our home. This world is not our home. And the Lord will bring us all the way home. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is our hope. And we can trust his promise. He kept his promise here in Jeremiah 29 to bring them back after 70 years. Even then, they still didn't seek him with their whole heart. He says, you, you seek me, you'll find me when you search with all your heart. And it's like, oh, that's such a good verse, except they never did it. They didn't do it. And he still brought them back. And he gave a new covenant, the one in which we participate, where he writes his law on our heart, and he came to seal it with his own blood. How can we sing the songs of Zion in Babylon? Because Babylon is where we live. How do we sing the songs of Zion here? Because through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will make it all the way home. They didn't make it because they were better. They didn't make it because they sought the Lord with all their heart. It was about the Lord keeping his promise. And that's how we get into. It's not our righteousness. It's not our goodness. It's not our seeking the welfare of the city better than we ever have before. It's the Lord who saves us. It's that we didn't seek him, but he sought us. That Jesus gave his own life for us when we were all going our own way. And so God does have plans for us. He has plans for you. Through Jesus, we have hope and a future that's beyond anything that we can experience or even imagine here. Not of prosperity now, but of a home with him forever. Because all his promises come true. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And he will lead us safely home. But we're aware we are not there yet. Do you feel that? We are not there. And so the big idea again was this. We must love, serve, and pray for the home where God has placed us while we wait for our final home. We go, but what about all the wrong? So we've been talking all, all the wrong out there. And there is right? It's there. It's real. This message isn't to pretend that all the wrong is like no big deal. And all the wrong was a big deal in Jeremiah 29 as well. The Lord did judge Babylon. And they're still told to seek the good, the welfare of the city. And so all the wrong that's out there and even the wrong that is done to us for following Jesus, God's going to take care of it. We can trust him live for him, and work for the good of the city. So the city is our home, 
and not our home. Our hopes can't be fixed here because our citizenship is in heaven. So we should never feel fully at home here, though we should be fully engaged here. Because we should plan like our exile is going to be long. So what does it mean to seek the peace and prosperity of the city? Pray for the city. Pray for your neighbors. I don't know how taxes are here, but they're kind of a thing at home. Pay taxes without complaining. That will set you apart. Love your neighbors. Clean up your block. That's probably also a Philly application. Do what's right before God, even when it's going to cost you something. Many Christians are good at doing right things until it's going to cost us something to follow Jesus. How will we really be seen to be different? Where we stick to principles, not because we're going to win the boycott war, but when we know we will lose. And we obey Christ because he's Christ. Not because of what we will get. Do what's right before God, even when it's going to cost you something. And do good work. You'll stand out. Because of the hope we have in Christ, we can live with confidence and joy. That's different than the world has and different than most Christians have. And we can do that even as the world flies out of control, careening from one crisis to the next. It doesn't mean we don't care about the plight of our neighbors and what's going on. But there's a confidence and joy even as we carry the weight of the world and seek to engage for the good of our city. So may the Lord give us grace through the power of the Spirit to live as his exiles here, living in such a way that those around us take note of our lives and ask about our hope. And by his grace, may we be ready to give an answer because we are longing for home and loving our city. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.